The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Morning, church. So let's... Uh... Let's start with a question, not, not necessarily looking for you to, you know, answer it out loud, just something to think about. How do you know uh, that you're saved? And really by that I mean by what, by what criteria are you um, measuring whether or not you're going to heaven when you die? How do you know that you're in a genuine relationship uh, with the Lord, and this thing, this this question was um, was the big question that was on the hearts and minds of the people in Jesus' day, who were kind of following him around and hearing him teach and seeing the things that he was doing. This is this is exactly what they were thinking of, and in several passages, the people are actually described um, using the word uh, seeker, seeking, and and um, they sought after, and and they were looking for the very thing that I just asked you about. They were looking for an answer as to how a person genuinely gets connected with the Lord. The people were looking for the way. They were searching for God. And they thought, they thought maybe, as they heard Jesus preach and they saw the things he was doing, they thought maybe he had the roadmap. That maybe he actually knew the way. And as they listened to him, of course, he told them what the way was, but he also, and this is going to be so important for us, he also exposed many kind of uh, faulty ways of salvation, ways that wouldn't actually get you salvation, ways that were actually dead ends, where you came up with nothing, spiritual dead ends. Now, um, if you're here this morning, unless you were dragged here, you're seeking after God, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever and, and you haven't yet uh, followed Christ, then you're seeking after some of the same things that, that the people in Jesus' day were seeking. Just tell me how I can get connected with God. And if you're a follower of Christ and you're here, then there's, we all understand this, there's this ongoing seeking of God, isn't there? And I want to know more, and I want my faith to increase, and I want my experience of God to go deeper. There are things in my life that still have to change, and I'm here ready to hear from God's Word so that those things can change. And, and so in a very real sense, we're all still seeking here, and in fact, even outside of these walls, uh, the people that didn't come uh, to church this morning, um, they're seeking too. A lot of them are seeking. They're looking for answers. They're faced with the same world that we're faced with that, that is so confused and, and, and so under duress these days. And a lot of people in our lives who would never come to church are asking the same questions about God. They're seeking for something. And they don't even really necessarily know what it is. And we would all agree that the world isn't offering us very much of anything. That the world is as lost as they are. And I'm here to say this morning from God's word, our authority, that the only profitable 
end to the search. The only road that is not a dead end is the one that leads through and to Jesus Christ. And so this is the question. How can we find salvation in Jesus? So that's what we're going to go after. Um, Why don't we read the text? Luke 11, um, verses uh, 29 uh, through 36. I'll read the text, I'll pray, and then we'll get to it. Sound good? I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll get to it. Sound okay? That's what I thought. All right. Luke eleven twenty nine. Got to have fun. All right. When the crowds, uh, when the crowds were increasing, he, uh, that's Jesus, uh, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to his generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light." Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we know that your word um, is sharper than any two-edged sword. We know it's living. We know it's active. We know that as a sword, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And we know that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that the sword of your spirit would cut through our doubts and cut through our questions. Father, that it would cut through our ignorance and our immaturity and our rebellions. Father, that we would hear a word from you, a sure word from you, and it would change us today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You agree with that prayer? Amen. All right. You will find salvation in Jesus. There's kind of two parts to every one of these points here. Let's start with this. You will find salvation in Jesus, not not by seeing a miraculous sign, but by hearing the gospel preached. Now, um, uh, people want to, some people, some people want to show. They want, they want, uh, lights and, and action, and uh, they want a sign from God, something miraculous, something awesome in the skies that convinces them that God is who He says He is. Now, notwithstanding the fact that I believe God does this every single day, gives us a sign in the heavens. The sun came up again today. The sun will go down again tonight at those 
are happening because God ordained it to be so, because he created it to be so. Those are really signs in the heavens of his faithfulness and of his existence. If you look up into the starry sky and you see the magnificence of the universe, and there are people who understand these things far better than I could ever explain them, and, and the, the uh, balance in the universe and the symmetry in the universe and the rules of physics that govern the universe show that there is a creator behind all of it that design demands a designer and notwithstanding all of that that the evidence of God is right there already it is actually doubtful that anyone would actually believe in God because of these things that these celestial signs and more miraculous ones that would happen one off really are not going to be convincing proof to anyone that they should repent and turn from their sins and follow Jesus. Now, I was thinking about this because you'll recall in the Old Testament, and, and um, we studied the book of Exodus not too long ago. How many people remember that? Please, please remember it. I put a lot of work into that series. I want you to remember that we studied Exodus. Now, you'll remember in Exodus that um, Moses came and he asked Pharaoh if, if for the people to be released from their slavery to go off and worship their God and, and be a people. And uh, Pharaoh, of course, said no. But then God unleashed these 10 miracles, if you will, these 10 signs, we called them, 10 plagues, as they're more commonly known. He unleashed these on the Egyptians. You remember all of those uh, from the book of Exodus, but let me just ask you a question here, and hopefully you remember this. How successful were the plagues at convincing these miracles, at convincing Pharaoh to release the people. On a scale of zero to 10, how convincing were these, were these signs? Zero, zero. And even after the 10th sign, when all of the firstborn died and the, the people were devastated and Pharaoh said, okay, fine, go. Because he just didn't want any more damage done to his country. He changed his mind and he sent his armies after them and they were destroyed in the Red Sea. You see, the, the signs aren't going to convince anybody to worship Yahweh, to turn their lives over to him in repentance. The signs didn't work on the Egyptians. They're not going to work on anybody. And we saw last week and in verse 16 that, that really the people asking for a sign, verse 16 says that some were testing Jesus, seeking a sign from heaven in spite of having already seen Jesus do so many personal miracles in the lives of individuals. And Jesus calls them out here and he says, verse 29, notice he calls them, an evil generation. Now, he's speaking to his own people. He's speaking to his fellow Jews, who, by the way, are the ones who received the law, the Torah, from God through Moses. They were the keepers of the Torah. They, their capital city had the temple of God right in the middle of it. That was the place where you went to meet God and people would do pilgrimages to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices to God right there in the temple. These were the people who were the recipients of the promised land. They were heirs of the promise of God. They had all the advantages. God had set them up perfectly and yet here's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, standing in front of them saying, 
you're actually an evil generation. And what he means by that is that they had rejected, they were in the process, in fact, of rejecting the Word of God. They were rejecting the message of the Messiah. They were rejecting the Messiah himself. And one commentator said this in my reading this week. I came across this little phrase that, that they had lost contact with God. Write that down if you're taking notes. They had lost contact with God. Now, I can't think of a better phrase than that one to describe this generation, the one we're living in. That we've lost contact with God. And so they were seeking for a sign. And Jesus tells them the only sign that they're going to get is what he calls, in verse 29 again, the latter part there, the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Now, you may not understand exactly what that means there. We're going we're to kind of look at that for a second, but let's review first who Jonah is. You remember Jonah from the Old Testament. He was a prophet and a preacher, and God had called him to go to a city, really one of the most powerful and principal cities of the day, the city of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire. And Instead of going and doing what God had called him to do, to go and preach to these people, he had some sense that that wasn't going to be a great mission. Because the Ninevites had this horrible reputation, and so Jonah decides, instead of going and doing that and likely ending up dead for his effort, he's going to hop on a boat and go in the opposite direction. So he gets on the boat. Remember this story? The storm comes, and... um, Uh, Jonah finally admits that he's the problem, and so they toss him overboard, and a great fish swallows him, and he spends three days uh, in the uh, belly of the fish until it, um, what's the right word, pukes him up on a beach. Can you say puke in a message? Is that all right? Well, I just did, so... um, so, so vomits him up on the beach, and, and then he decides, no, I'm, gonna, I'm going to Nineveh. And so off he goes, and he preaches, and what happens after he preaches the message to these vile people? They, they repent. They repent. And was Jonah happy about that? Uh, no, he was not. He was hoping for judgment. He was hoping to be vindicated for his message. And so, so that's the story of Jonah and, and here's the sign, and especially this is true in the Gospel of Luke as you compare to other Gospels. Luke doesn't give us any more details than that. And so what we understand and what's important to Luke in writing this is that Jonah himself was the sign. Jonah, this is the sign, Jonah preached and the people repented. They responded to the word. That's the sign. And Jesus is really saying, that's what should happen. That people just... Just hear the word of God. They don't need any other miraculous signs, not personal ones, not celestial ones. They just need to hear the word and repent. And Jesus makes the correlation. Verse 30, Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh. Then he says, so will the son of man be to this generation. Who's the son of man? Say his name. It's Jesus. And so he's saying, Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, and now I'm assigned to you, just me. Me being here and me telling you what I'm telling you, that's all you need. Even if there were no miracles, if Jesus never did a miracle, it wouldn't have changed anything. He himself was the sign. His message was the sign. 
And Jesus, in fact, said the same thing a little while later. You can turn with me. You have your Bibles open. Turn to Luke 16. In verse um, 31. We'll get to Luke 16, 31 on uh, May 6th and 7, 2017. The Lord willing. But notice what he says here. So this is in the, the little story, the, the rich man in Lazarus. And the rich man who's in hell wants to send his, um, his he wants, he's wants someone to come back from the dead to be able to go and warn his brothers, wants to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers about this. And this is what Jesus said, or, or Abraham actually says it, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets. In other words, if they don't believe the Bible... If they're not going to listen to preaching, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Even the miracle of someone being raised from the dead isn't enough to convince someone. Of course, that's a prophetic word concerning the resurrection of Jesus. He, he rose from the dead, and even the Jewish leaders wouldn't believe that he did. It didn't convince people. And so, he's making the point that even the miracle of the resurrection won't be enough to convince people. People will explain away the miracle. They'll see a sign in heaven as a natural phenomenon. It's not enough. And so it really comes down to this, what we're doing right now, getting God's word open and hearing it and doing it. And uh, this is a good moment just to kind of explain a little bit about why we do what we do and the way we do it. Because there are so many people who think that what we're doing right now, the preaching of God's word, that preaching itself is passe in a modern world. But here's what I know. The world, the world and its way of doing it, the world is skating harder and harder and harder every day and making zero progress. They're not getting anywhere. In fact, they're regressing. The world is not um, becoming a lighter and better place. It's becoming a darker and worse place. I don't feel safer today than I did 10 years ago. It's not a safer place, but a more dangerous place. The system is crumbling. And I would say this, that, that from where I sit, preaching is not becoming less relevant, but more relevant in light of where the world is today. Would you agree? It's becoming more relevant, and we need more preaching, more preachers who will get this book open and tells, tell us what it says and tell the world what it says because it alone is providing all of the answers that we need to fit it all together and to make it make sense in any way at all. This is the only book that's gonna provide salvation from a darkening world. And I don't know how much time we have left, but my time and my breath are committed to the proclamation of God's word without apology. That's our only hope. And for you, because please understand, this is not a solitary gift being exercised right now that my preaching is just something I do, but you're participating in it. Your prayers, your attention, your devotion to it, and beyond that, to be able to go out to people as, as Philip did with Nathaniel and say, you need to come and hear what God is saying. 
your loved ones who don't know Christ, your friends, your coworkers and neighbors to be able to say to them, look, I know you're struggling, but I know where there's an answer. I know something that can help you. I know, this is what Peter said, I know where there's a more sure word of prophecy that'll lead you to Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's not going to come. We're not going to be saved by seeing a miracle, but by hearing the gospel preach. Then look at this, not by trusting the world's philosophies, but by pursuing the wisdom of God. Now, Jesus tells this evil generation um, in verse 31, he tells them about, notice here, the queen of the south. And some of you might remember her as the queen of Sheba. And um, you can jot down a couple of Old Testament references here. First uh, Kings 10, First Kings 10, the first 13 verses, 1 to 13, and Second Chronicles 9, 1 to 12, those two references. Um, refer to the queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. How many people like geography? You want to know where Sheba is? How many people like geography? Raise your hand for the 12 people that like geography. So this is a map of the Middle East. You can see uh, right here. And um, this is a map from the time of Solomon. And the thing about Solomon's reign was it was the apex of Israel's influence and power uh, in history. And um, Solomon had negotiated trade contracts with so many other empires. And people would come to Jerusalem. And it was a very wealthy gathering time for the nation of Israel. So these arrows are showing different trade negotiations that he had put together. And uh, Israel's kind of like right there at the top where all the arrows are pointing to. And uh, Sheba's down. You can see down towards the uh, bottom right corner of the map, Sheba on the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, we can show you another slide here that shows where uh, this whole kingdom's influence was. Because if you ask people who are in Yemen today, um, they will claim that's at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, they will claim that the Queen of Sheba was from uh, their country. And if you ask an Ethiopian, uh, they will tell you that the Queen of Sheba was from their country. And the fact is both are um, reflecting the accuracy of their histories because uh, her reign would have encompassed both sides of the Red Sea. And it was just a 25-mile gap between the two at the south end of the Red Sea. And so that's where she was from. She didn't have to travel very far, uh, although in those days all travel was uh, more difficult. And so she would have left her kingdom down here at the south end of the Arabian Peninsula or around the Horn of Africa. And she would have traveled northward uh, along the Red Sea route up to the city of Jerusalem uh, to meet with Solomon. And she went simply because of his reputation as a man of great wisdom. And if you read the Old Testament accounts, she asked many difficult questions of Solomon, all, <clears throat> excuse me, all of which she found the answer to. The queen apparently really liked what Solomon said and embraced, if you, if, again, if you look at the Old Testament account, she actually embraced and gave a very, very firm statement about her devotion to Yahweh, her acknowledgement of who he was. And Jesus says this about her, back in our text now, Jesus says that she will rise up at the judgment, that she's going to be resurrected, at the judgment, Jesus says she became a believer and she's going to condemn this generation that he's talking to because she had the good sense 
to leave her own country, to make the trip, to get in front of Solomon, to hear his wisdom, to believe what she heard about Yahweh. And then Jesus said this, something greater than Solomon is here. She esteem, he esteems Solomon's wisdom. He says, the queen of Sheba left to come and hear him. And then he says, something greater than Solomon is here. What's the something greater? It's him. It's his wisdom. We're talking about pursuing that wisdom instead of trusting in the world's philosophies. And of all the philosophies of the world that would most concern us, it would be those that actually undermine the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Chief among those would be those who say that he's not God. And um, it just it seems like we're probably due again for another uh, PBS or, or National Geographic um, expose of Jesus, because we haven't had one in a few months. But for sure, they're producing another one that they're going to release at Christmas or at Easter to let us know that Jesus isn't who he said he was. That's, that's the world's philosophy, that he's only a myth, or that if he existed, he was just a wise man, or that he's only one way to God, but not the only way to God. That the miracles are just legends created over time. Or related that faith in God is anti-science. And in fact, what we would believe is that God created all the science behind the creation. God created that. That God, it was God's idea to make the natural world that we see with all of the rules of the natural world attached to it. And so parents, as you contemplate, because this is where this comes into play, as you contemplate sending your children off to colleges and universities where they will hear and be inundated with uh, the world's philosophies and mocked for believing anything else, if you have not adequately prepared them by reinforcing the truths of God's word that they need to stand in opposition to the world's philosophies, then it is possible you will lose them. It's that serious. We have answers for all of these things. There's not, there's not a word, not a sentence in the Bible that is incompatible with any proven science. None. The Bible is wholly compatible with everything that we know to be true in the natural world. And we need to not trust the world's philosophies, not for a second, but we need to pursue the wisdom of God. And anyone who believes in the world's philosophies and rejects the wisdom of God's word is condemned already by a woman from history who traveled from her land to meet with a king and hear a word and believe it. And Paul would later say it this way in Colossians 2, 8, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of, of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, and it's always, always rooted in Jesus. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Don't, don't trust the world's philosophies, but pursue godly wisdom. All right. You will also find salvation in Jesus, and not by thinking you're good enough already, but by genuinely repenting of your sin. Uh, verse uh, 32 Jesus goes back to this uh, example of the Ninevites, and, and we have to understand and enter into how offensive this, this really was for them, using the filthy Ninevites as a positive example of what to do if you want to be faithful to God, you want to be saved. These were citizens of a very ruthless and violent uh, nation who would go on to pillage some 30, 40 years later, would go on to pillage and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Their reputation uh, was horrific. They were not heirs of the promise. They didn't have a temple to Yahweh in their city. And yet they too, Jesus says, like the queen of Sheba, they too will rise up at the judgment as believers, that one generation of Ninevites who believed and condemn the unrepentant, condemn the evil generation that Jesus was speaking to, who were Jews, who had the word, who were considered the children of God. Why the Ninevites? Why, how, how is it that they become the, the, the best example of what Jesus is trying to communicate here? And it's, it's very simple. You can see it right there in the text. What Jesus is interested in what he's still interested in here today is just simply those two words in the verse, they repented. They heard what Jonah preached, they agreed with him, and they turned from their wickedness. Now let's lock down what repentance is. Repentance, the, um, for those of you that like this, uh, the original language word, the Greek word is metanoia which means to change one's ways as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude concerning sin and righteousness. I'm going to change my ways because I've completely changed how I'm thinking about this, and I'm going to, I'm going to turn toward God. So repentance is, we could say it this way, repentance is agreeing with God and willingly turning from uh, your way to his way. That's repentance. That's what the Ninevites did. That's what the Jews of Jesus' day had not done. And Jesus is saying to them, Jonah got the job done. And now, he says again, something greater than Jonah is here. Who's he referring to? Himself. He's, he's a greater wise man than Solomon. He's a greater prophet and preacher than Jonah. He's greater than any other way of being saved as if there was another way. He's the only way to be saved. And if you're chill, still trying to be good enough, 
if you think somehow that you have it in you to be saved, still thinking that God won't condemn you for your sin, if you're still, and this is the way I used to think about it before I came to faith in Christ. I remember growing up as a kid, I remember being a young teen and trying to think about God and, and going to church, and I remember thinking, how many of you thought this way when you were younger or maybe you still think this way, that as long as I weigh out the good and the evil in my life and as long as there are more good things in my life versus evil things in my life, that I think I'm gonna be okay with God. And the problem is that it's always I only think. I'm not so sure. Are there enough good things versus bad things? And I would weigh it out and hope the scales would balance or tip in my favor. And if that's the way you're thinking, think again. Think differently. Agree with God. Turn to him. Repent. Ready for number four? Yeah? Those were the easy three. You will find salvation in Jesus not by assuming anything of God, but personally choosing to be full of light. Now, some people think that ultimately everyone is going to get to heaven. Believing in hell has actually fallen out of void, uh, out of vogue, not just outside the church, but even inside the church. Those who do believe it very often have a don't ask, don't tell a policy with regard uh, to hell. Many people assume that God is actually a celestial softy who's going to violate his own holiness to allow people into heaven who never repented, who are still in their sin, who do not have the righteousness of Christ on them because they never claim the blood of Christ on their lives. God can't violate his own holiness in that way. The people Jesus was addressing had gotten to the place where they assumed they were right with God no matter what happened, they assumed that they were good little church people and appropriately religious, but not over the top. They assumed that they were saved by their ethnicity and by their heritage, by their family connections and by their tradition. They were wrong. And you know, we live in this society now where every kid gets a ribbon and uh, teachers can't fail a kid even if they don't do the work, where inclusion is the buzzword and tolerance the highest value and political correctness keeps us from ever saying that something is wrong. And I need to tell you that something's wrong in what we believe. I need to tell you it's not politically correct, it's certainly not tolerant or inclusive, but I need to tell you that not everybody's going to heaven. Don't assume anything like that of God. But instead, personally choose to have the light of Jesus Christ in your life. Personally choose that. You're not getting it any other way. You need to be full of light, and you're only going to get it when you personally, singularly repent. So verses 33 and 34, Jesus kind of shifts gears a little bit here, and we have this this metaphor of the light, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that 
uh, those who enter may see the light. That makes sense. You're not going to light something and then cover it up. It doesn't even make sense. There's no logic to that. You don't, you don't light a lamp and then conceal it to keep it from being seen. And when we have the light of Jesus Christ in our lives, it's going to shine and people are going to notice and see it. It's going to influence others. It's going to bring change. That's what the light does. Then he goes on in verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. Now let's, um, we did a little geography, let's do a little uh, biology now. Um, I don't understand much about any of this stuff. The cross section of an eye here, and you can see that light enters in through the eye. That's how we see things. Light brings it in to us. I just learned this week that we see things upside down. Did you know, how many people knew that, that you see things upside down? How many people are learning that for the first time right here? You don't want to admit it. So, so right now, as I'm looking at you and light is entering into my eyes, you're all upside down. But, but, that, but your brain reinterprets that and flips it the right way up. You got that? So, but but the, it's the light coming in to our eyes and the light is coming in from the, from the outside and entering in and then lighting up our bodies, giving light to the fullness of who we are, bringing enlightenment into our lives. And so, we have the light of Jesus Christ uh, in us. And um, not in the sense that our, our bodies admit light, but that we take in the light from outside of ourselves. That becomes important in just a moment. Verse 34 continues, when your eye is healthy, full of light, when your eye is bad, it's full of darkness. So the healthy eye is taking in the truth of God's word. If you have a healthy eye right now, you're hearing God's word, you're taking it in, you're wanting to live that out. It's a choice that you make. But if your eye is bad, you're blocking it out, no light is coming in, then your whole body is going to be filled with darkness, the text says in verse 34. Again, that's a choice that you must make. And so, when you and I hear the word of God preached, when we read it for ourselves, when, when we study it on our own, when we discuss it with others, it actually lays a responsibility on us to respond appropriately. Now, can I be perfectly straight with you now for a few minutes? Yes? Yes? What I'm going to say next isn't exactly the best church growth strategy, not the best way to fill seats but it is the best obey God strategy, and I prefer that. So our approach here at Harvest, the way that we do a ministry, is to preach verse by verse through the Word of God. That means that when we're in the Gospel of Luke, and it's the middle of July, that we are not rounding off the edges of very difficult verses in Luke's Gospel. That, that we're, not, we're not softening the message at all. I don't have any sugar up here to sprinkle on top. That we're going to go after this. We're not skipping any of the hard parts. We're not, as, as Paul would say in Acts 20, we're not shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God. 
So, and this is, this is the thing that I wanted to say, if you don't intend to listen and follow through with what you hear, it would be better, it would be better if you had not come. It would have been safer for you to have stayed home today. If you're going to reject God's message, it would be better, don't miss the quotes, it would be better for you to do so in ignorance rather than in knowledge. Either way, you're ending up in hell. But the scriptures seem to give some indication that the, the way will be less difficult for you in some way if you're in ignorance rather than in knowledge. That those who have a knowledge of the truth will have a harder time of it. Finally, you will find salvation in Jesus not by making it up yourself, but by receiving the light of Christ alone. So the theme of light continues in verse 35 where Jesus makes the point that there is, I said we would come back to this, no natural, it always comes from outside, no natural inner light inside the human being. We're all sinners. And sin has extinguished all light from us. This is why we need Jesus Christ in our lives. We live in darkness until the light of Jesus Christ enters. That's one of the things that in repenting you need to agree with. You need to agree with the starting point that none of us has any light inside of us. That apart from Jesus Christ offering his life as a substitution for ours, his perfect life for our sinful life, then there's no way that the curse of death that's on us is ever going to be reversed. We need to agree with God about that. And because he died on the cross, because he shed his blood, because he was resurrected to new life and defeated sin and death, then we have hope in front of us. We need to agree with God about that. That's the light that's coming into our lives. And it needs to come in from outside because sin has extinguished all light inside of us. We live in darkness until the light of Jesus Christ comes. Walter Liefeld said, if we think we can generate our own light, we must beware lest that inner light prove to be darkness. That's what he says in verse 35. And then verse 36 just kind of rehearses it all again and repeats it for emphasis. And you can't miss the point that you're only ever going to be full of light if light is shining on you and in you from outside of yourself, from Jesus Christ. And then... And then what's going to happen, and we saw this already in the message, then that's going to shine out from you to others. It can't help but happen. We will be influencers for Jesus Christ. The true Christ follower will not only be personally transformed by Christ, but will be engaging in helping to transform others reaching others, impacting their lives, influencing this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And the so-called Christian whose life is not reflecting the light cannot claim to have the light within because there's simply no evidence to back up the claim. And in next week's message, as we continue on in Luke 11, we're going to talk about justice issues and how this all plays out. There's so many justice issues that are in front of us these days. How we're responding to immigrants, how we deal with those of different ethnicities, how we respond to women, how we protect and care for children. These are all foremost in the mind of Jesus because those who have the light will bring about transformation in the societies in which they live. And again, we're going to look at that in some depth, depth next week. And the bottom line on all of this is you can't make it up for yourself, but you need to receive the light of Jesus Christ alone. He alone lights the darkness in our lives. So I want us to make sure we have this, okay? You will find salvation, you will find salvation in Jesus, not by seeking a miraculous sign, not by trusting the world's philosophies or thinking that you're good enough already or assuming anything of God or making it up yourself. You're never going to get salvation those ways. But by hearing the gospel preached, by pursuing the wisdom of God, by genuinely repenting of your sin, by choosing to be full of light, and by receiving, receiving the light of Jesus Christ alone. And so we're going to sing as our response to God. We're going to pray to him through the words of this song as we worship him and as we close our time together thinking about all that we've heard from his word. So why don't you stand with me right now as the team leads us. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.